Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we know that Jesus lives. We know that he lives and reigns with you, one God now and forever. And so we ask that as we come to your word this morning, we are prepared, that our hearts are open, our spirits are filled with your word, so that we might praise him evermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's a pretty fundamental question that often gets overlooked, and for a lot of people, it's kind of difficult to answer. What does it mean to be a Christian? Now, I'm not looking for responses from you right now, but if I were to ask you that, what would you say? And by the way, uh, again, we have sermon notes, so if you want to try to answer that along the way, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's a good exercise to do. For some people, it means... You know, trying to be nice, living by the golden rule. For some people, it means going to church. For some people, they combine religion and politics. This came to the forefront for me because I was advertising on on Facebook, on social media, our Christmas Eve service, right? This nice, gentle ad. And somebody wrote under the comments, are you a Republican church? I did not respond back, but I did find out how to block people on our Facebook page. You know, for for some people, it's a socioeconomic uh, framework. For example, if you're Christian, it means you're conservative and pro-capitalism, or you're liberal and pro-socialism. Or it talks about sexuality or gender. I mean... The problem is, Christianity becomes this monster of hyphenated things. So, for example, it might be that you're a, Christian, you're a conservative Republican Christian or a liberal Democratic Christian. By the way, this doesn't even cover some of the things that people associate Christianity with. Some people say, actually, I had one woman say she was a Lutheran Buddhist. I have no idea what that means, by the way. And just this morning, I was reminded that there are people who say that they are a Christian witch. Right. So all of this hyphenated stuff about Christianity is really hard in our culture to take in. What does it mean to be a Christian? So I thought we would start a series on what does it mean to be a Christian. And we are going to cover some, not all, but some of the fundamental aspects of what that means. Now, when we say Christian, let's at least define that term. To be a Christian means you are a follower of Christ, or in a very literal sense, of the Christian party, but a follower of Christ. So the fundamental question is, well, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? And you know, we answer that week in and week out, and we delve into that question, especially from Advent through Epiphany. We've taken a look at who is Jesus. We've taken a look that he is the shepherd, he is the Messiah, he is the king, he is the Christ, he is Emmanuel, he is God with us, us. and we are going to continue that no matter what message it is, because Jesus is central to what it means to be a Christian. At the same time, we are going to take a look at some fundamental aspects of what it means to be a Christian, and the one we are going to begin with today is the gospel. 
Just as many people have trouble answering, what does it mean to be a Christian? Most people, churched or unchurched, have a very difficult time answering, what is the gospel? I know, because I've asked many, many people, churched and unchurched, believers and unbelievers, what is the gospel? And there's a lot of confusion about it. But the gospel is the core message of what it means to be a Christian. Theologian and pastor R.C. Sproul said, there is no greater message to be heard than that which is we call the gospel. But as important as it is, it is often given to massive distortions or oversimplifications. People think that they're preaching the gospel when they tell you, you can have a purpose in your life, or you can have meaning in your life, or that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. All of these things are true, and they're important, but they don't get to the heart of the gospel. So today, we're going to get to the heart of the gospel, and we're going to do that by taking a look at 1 Corinthians, because the gospel ultimately is good news from God. Let's go to our text today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless I preach, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So what's the context? Paul has been writing a very long letter to this church in Corinth. And the Corinthian church was one messed up church. And Paul was dealing with so many different topics of division. They, they had trouble with, well, who is Jesus? There was division on that. There was division on leadership. There, was law, there were lawsuits that happening. There were sexual immorality, drunkenness, issues with marriage, what you can, what you can't eat, uh, issues with spiritual gifts, the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So near the very end of this letter, he says, now I want to remind you, of something that is primary, that is of first importance, and that is the gospel. So what is the gospel? Gospel means good news. That's the Greek word. It means good news. And thus Paul is saying that he is preaching and giving good news, and that they should stand, that he preached it, and they received it, and that they need to stand firm on this good news. Because you see, the good news isn't a secondary thing. The gospel isn't something that's secondary or trivial. It is primary. The gospel is the primary news of your salvation. It's the primary news. It's not a take it or leave it sort of thing. It's not like, well, I believe or don't believe in the gospel, but I'm still a Christian. No, it is the primary good news. And Paul says, you need to cling. You need to stand fast on this because your salvation depends on this good news. We need to stand firm on the good news. If you, if you can't explain the gospel, today we need to take a step in explaining the gospel, the good news, because it is your salvation. It is for the salvation of others. 
Because implied in standing firm on this good news is also that we share this good news with others. But one of the things within the verses here that I want to point out is that this good news isn't just from Paul. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So he's saying, I didn't make this up. I didn't get it from other people. This is directly from God himself. The good news. In Galatians, it says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That sounds nice, right? We all want to receive a revelation from Jesus. But would you like to have received the revelation that Paul received? It was more like getting smacked in the head by a two-by-four. Do you remember? Paul was on the road to Damascus. And this is the account. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Paul was there. This bright light fell to the ground. And do you remember? He was blinded. For three days he was blinded. That's a revelation. If you want a revelation, that is a revelation. So Paul is making and taking great pains to say that he received this, that it is not of man, but it is of divine origin. And that is a point you must take to heart. The gospel you and I have is not from man. It is from God himself. So Paul, in these first three verses, sums it up. I preached to you the good news that I received, which is from God himself, so pay attention. And then, in very short order, he gives four facts regarding the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. These four facts summarize, epitomize, the very foundation of the gospel message. Now, you and I, if we've been to church, we've read these things, we've heard these things, and they kind of, you know, they, they kind of just gloss over us after a while. You go, yep, yep, okay, okay. But Paul's saying this is of primary importance, so we must never get tired of these words. They can't become mundane to us, because if they have become mundane to us, I guarantee that your salvation has become mundane to you as well. So we're going to take a look at them in order here. And the first one, that Christ died for our sins. Here, Paul uses the word Christ, right? He doesn't say Jesus, but he says Christ. Christ is the official title of the Messiah. It points to the role of the Messiah found in the Old Testament. 
As a matter of fact, Paul has used two times in just a short order that all of this happened according to the scriptures. And so we take a look, and what we've been doing is taking a look at the Old Testament and then taking a look at the New and seeing how Christ fulfilled what was given in the Old Testament. Our reading from Isaiah is the one about the suffering servant who died for us. So Christ the suffering servant, Christ the Lamb of God who died for us. And see, when it says that Christ died for our sins, you should take to effect that it means on behalf of our sins, not just for, kind of over there, away from us, but on behalf of your sin. So Christ died on behalf of your sin. And this is the good news, right? This is the good news. The gospel is good news because Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself on behalf of our sins, or you could put your name in there. Christ died on behalf of my sin. So here we have the Paschal Lamb whose blood covers all of our sins. Okay? Now there's two main sticking points with this that people have issue with. One, that he sacrificed himself, and the second is that word sin. So, that he sacrificed himself does not play well in today's culture, which is so me-centric. Nobody seems to want to be able to sacrifice themselves on behalf of others. As a matter of fact, there's one prominent writer who said that God the Father sending his son to die on the cross was child abuse. That's how some people see that Jesus and his sacrifice was simply child abuse. But they don't understand what sacrifice is. Think of all the fathers, the mothers and fathers, who sent their sons to war. Think about World War I, World War II. World War II, fighting the evil of Hitler. The fathers... The mothers sent their son out of patriotism, out of fighting evil, knowing that their son might not come back. But they sent it, and they sent their son, and it was a sacrifice of love. God the Father loved the world so much that he gave us his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a sacrifice, and people have trouble with this. The other aspect is this word sin. It is not a popular word in today's culture. People say, well, I make mistakes. I may not do as well. But to say that I'm a sinner before God just sticks in their throat and they can't admit it. If there is no sin, there's no good news. If there's no sin, there's no good news. Because what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus died for your sins. I was talking with some uh, Mormon missionaries, two very nice young ladies, 
And they were trying, I said, so what is the gospel? And by the way, they, they couldn't answer it, right? They went, you know, all over. I, I had no idea what the gospel was, according to them. Well, I said, if that's the good news, what's the bad news? And they were, they were like stumped. They had no idea what bad news might be. The good news is that Christ died for our sins. The sins, the bad news. Christ is the good news. You see, in just six words that Christ died for our sins, we have the summary of how Christ atoned for our sins. That's all in that first phrase. Paul's given a shorthand version of it. There's a lot to it here. So let's go to the second one, and that he was buried. This phrase really highlights that Jesus died, right? He, he was buried. He was in the grave. Now, there's a lot of people who have trouble with this one, too. Islam, by the way, many people in Islam say that Jesus didn't die, that he, some people still say that he, it was a swoon theory, that he was mostly dead, he fainted from everything that happened, they took him to the grave, and then he just revived from that. Um, there's a line from The Princess Bride. Anybody see the movie Princess Bride? There's this... Oh, what, what is his name? Uh, he's, a, he's a mad max wizard or something. He says of the hero, he's mostly dead. But mostly dead means he's a little alive. That's the swoon theory in a nutshell. But if you read about the accounts and you know the medical accounts of how Jesus died, he died. He died and was buried See, the fact that Jesus really died speaks to the nature of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. He had to be fully human in order to die on behalf of our sins. And he had to be fully God so that he could offer a perfect God-honoring atonement. Fully man and fully God. This is that phrase. As fully man... He was conceived in the womb, he had, he had emotions, he had physical needs, he suffered, he died. All critics would agree that he was human. But if you take a look at the accounts of Jesus, he also had all the attributes of God. He was all-knowing, he was all-powerful, he raised people from the dead, he was and is eternal. He was worshipped as God. Look, a lot of different people are going to make Jesus into a Jesus of their own imagination. But if you take a look at all the other religions, Jesus doesn't even compare with any of the other religions. A man named Erwin Lutzer said this, scan the religious horizons. Go to the library and read about all the religious teachers of history. Look not for a prophet, for their name is Legion but find a savior, a qualified sinless savior, you will discover that Christ has no competitor. You see, that he was buried carries as much depth as that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. And that he was raised on the third day. So, here's where some language is important. When you take a look at the verbs, 
died and buried there in the past tense. He died, past tense, done. He was buried, past tense, done. Ah, but when you get to this word, he was raised, it has a different sense and thus a different meaning. It means that Jesus was raised from the dead and continues his life in the resurrected state. It means he was raised and that effect continues on forever. That's how this is written for our edification, for our knowledge. That Christ lives today. That he is the resurrection and the life. Do you remember what Job said? He said, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. This is also why we sang the song, I know my Redeemer lives. I know my Redeemer lives. All of creation testifies. This life within me cries, I know my Redeemer lives. The gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead, and that he continues to live this very day. And that he was raised also speaks to the power of God in the resurrection, not other people taking him out of the tomb, but the power of God himself raising Christ from the dead. And that he was raised on the third day. This is a prophecy. You can take a look at scripture throughout. I'm not going to take all of the time. If you want, there's a couple places. I'll just mention them. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Jonah uh, chapter 1, verse 17, which also Jesus refers to. But the easiest way, by the way, is just to take a look at the gospel reading that I gave you today. The gospel reading in John. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Right there. And then the disciples, after he had been raised, remembered that. And then they believed the scriptures. So this is a prophecy fulfilled on on the third day. This last part, he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. That he was buried supports the fact that he died. Then he appeared to to Cephas, and the twelve supports the fact that he really was raised from the dead. His bodily appearance gave proof to everyone. This would stand up in a court of law because you would have all of these testimonies, these eyewitness accounts of Jesus being raised from the dead. How many of you remember the story of Thomas, though, right? Thomas said, hmm, you know, unless I see the wounds, I put my my hand, my finger in that wound, and in his side, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus appeared and said, Thomas, come here. Put your finger there. Put your finger there. And then what did Thomas profess? My Lord and my God. In literal fashion, the Lord of me and the God of me. My Lord and my God. This is the proof that was given. 
And then also it says that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Do you realize that if each person of those 500 people gave just a 15-minute testimony, you would have five straight days of testimony of the resurrected Jesus. This is so important that he was buried, that he was died, buried, and rose again. We profess that each week in the Apostles' Creed, each month when we do the Nicene Creed, we confess the same thing. It is central to the gospel message. It is so important that if a person either denies his death or his resurrection, there is no hope of salvation for them. If you deny his death or his resurrection, there's no hope of salvation because you are believing in some other Jesus. But for those who do believe, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. I know this is a somber note, isn't it? This is the primary importance of the gospel. It is either death or life. For those who believe, it is the power of salvation. So the heart of the good news is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. This is the message of Christianity. What does it mean to be a Christian is to hold fast, to stand firm in that gospel message. Because in that gospel message, you know what you find? You find the love of God made manifest in Christ Jesus, who did for you what you cannot do for yourself. That's the heart of the good news. So if somebody asks you, what does it mean to be a Christian? Somewhere in there better mean the gospel. And today, for you to start to be able to say, what is the gospel? Because it's your salvation, and it's a salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift you have given us in Christ Jesus. In faith, let us cling to this gift let us cling to the gospel. We, we know it is your righteousness given to us in Christ Jesus. We know it is your love. And we praise and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com.